Hello, Leah Peaky here. Today's guest is the author of my favorite data storytelling book of all time. Enough said. Stay tuned to find out who's making it rain knowledge on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 35. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics, visualizations, and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hello and welcome to the 35th episode of Present Beyond Measure, the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization and storytelling, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights. Whether you're a digital marketer, analyst, SEO, SEM, CRO, or CMO, (laughs) you are in the right place for telling compelling and inspiring data stories. If you're interested in getting a really deep dive into my prescription for data storytelling awesomeness, be sure to scroll to the bottom of the show notes page of this episode to sign up for the Pika Protocol. It is a super practical and approachable prescriptive approach. I said approach several times. Hmm. To telling really awesome data stories that inspire action and really communicate the value of your work. And I'd love to hear what you think about that. Oh man, I am so fired up about today's special guest. I found this guy almost by accident and his work has been so profoundly impactful that he's actually shaped the growth of my teachings. I am psyched to bring him to you today, so I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Let's do it. Hello, and today's guest is a self-described data biz geek and a senior editor at, oh, I don't know, just the Harvard Business Review. And in addition to creating the successful vision statement department in the magazine, he's written and edited many articles for HBR and other top business and tech-related print and web publications. But the reason he's here today is he is the author of a book on data storytelling that I not only devoured Harry Potter style, and that's saying something (laughs) for a business book, I couldn't put it down, but it quickly rose through the ranks to my most recommended, most cited books in my workshops and speaking sessions. The book is called Good Charts, nice and simple. And being able to create them is exactly what he helps you do. And it turns out he's also a super friendly and approachable kind of guy. So with that, I'd like to introduce you to Scott Baranato. Welcome. Thank you, Leah. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Can I show the book? Is it all right? Can we start by tonight? Yes, yes. And here... This goes everywhere with me, and it, and it exceeds my uh, luggage weight allowance, but I don't care. <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing. So, Scott, I discovered your book by accident as a recommended author on Amazon, and I was like, how did I never hear about this? And I'm not sure I'll ever be the same. So, you know, I'm using your teachings in my workshops and blog posts and, and things, and I just want to get right into it. It's sure. great. So... You start the book by making a key distinction between a well-built chart and a good chart. So they're not necessarily the same thing. What is a good chart, Scott? 
Sure. And this is sort of the entirety of the reason I wrote the book was because I felt as I sort of did a lot of data visualization, as I looked to resources, that a lot of them really focused on the rules of chart making. You know, mm. always use this type in this situation, never use this type, use these colors, don't use these colors. And right. it, it felt a little, you know, strict, a little sort of uh, not helpful because what I was discovering is I could create really nice looking charts, but they often didn't say what I needed them to say and people still weren't getting it. So when I say good chart, really what I'm talking about is you get the context right. You know what the audience needs. You know how it's going to be delivered if it's on a screen or on a piece of paper. And that tells you sort of how to build it and what to build. Uh, and you just focus on the idea you want to you get across. I think one of the sort of cardinal sins or one of the, the big mistakes a lot of people make when they make charts is they just visualize the data. Yes. You know, they have some data in a spreadsheet. They tell it to take this column and this row make a line chart out of it. And, and that's not really what we're doing when we're making a good chart. We want to get an idea across. Um, and so that sometimes involves the data plus other things. Sometimes it involves subsets of the data. It involves recalculations. There's lots of things mm. you can do to bring an idea forward beyond just visualizing the data. So good charts really for me are anything that's in context, that understands its context. And I tell people when I do speaking workshops too, you know, I'd rather see a hand sketch chart that says exactly what it's supposed to say and is somewhat messy right. than a perfectly built, beautiful chart that doesn't say the right thing. Mm, that's such a great point. And I heard you talk about context. And I thought you gave a great example of a really well-built chart that totally lands flat because the presenter wasn't taking into account the specific experiences and biases and preferences and needs of the audience that they're presenting to. So do you feel that the audience needs plays into a lot of what makes a chart good? Completely. It's almost the entirety of, of what you're doing. <laughs> sure the audience gets the idea they need, right? And only the idea they need. Because what happens, and we, I had to do a lot of research on visual perception to understand this. When you show something visual to someone, their mind immediately goes sort of into overdrive to understand what it is they're looking at. And the easier you can make it for their mind to get to the idea, the more they're going to actually learn and retain that information. If you put a chart up there, it's got 45 data points. It's got a lot of labels. It's got um, lots of color. It's got pointers going everywhere. You know, maybe there's some notes on the side, seven bullet points underneath it. People are overwhelmed by that because yeah. their brain wants to get it, but it has to do so much work about where to start, where to go, what does it mean? Should I be focusing on the green thing or the red thing? You know, <laughs> right. Nothing on there. And so what we have to do is sort of understand how we take these things in. And that allows us to really focus down on just showing the only, only what we need to show. Yes, I, I love that. And I think uh, Gar Reynolds said, you know, the importance of reduce and simplify. I'm missing a step. <laughs> but reducing what you have and simplifying to the core piece that you're trying to communicate, I think, is what we are not empowered with as a skill when we I think in, come in. Yeah, I'm sorry. I think in some ways it's not surprising that I like doing this because I'm an editor and you <laughs> yes. are really a lot of what good visualization is, is editing. You know, any creative pursuit, I tell people this all the time, whether you're a chef, a cabinet maker, it doesn't matter. Any creative pursuit really comes down to editing. You, know, mm. you, you can learn all That's of the so skills true. in the world and you can apply all of those skills, but if you're not editing for context, then, you know, you're not going to have a good outcome. 
It makes so much sense. And now one of the great parts of your book is you have these really helpful visual aids for understanding your concepts. So there's a great quadrant model in the beginning uh, for kind of decoding the world of data viz. So it's the good chart matrix. Can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. I, I actually um, created this matrix because what I found when I started talking to people is they said, well, I'll just find the person who's visual and then all my data viz problems will be <laughs> There's a couple of problems with that. First of all, researchers will tell you there's no such thing as a visual thinker. We're all visual thinkers. Vision right. is what mind does. Um, so we all have about the same capacity to learn visually. Mm. Um, people like, enjoy visuals. Some enjoy them more than others, but we all learn the same way. But the other thing was that different visualization tasks require different skills, right? So in that matrix, really what I do is I divide it on two axes. You know, on the, the X, it's conceptual or data-driven. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and on the Y, it's either sort of declarative or exploratory, right? Mm -hmm. When you cross those things, you get four types of vids. Declarative, data-driven. That's your everyday data viz, your charts and graphs and your presentations, all of that. Right. This is what happened. <laughs> declarative, conceptual. Those are your... We call it consultant's corner, you know, cycle diagrams, you know, like arrows just going in a circle yep. thing, kind of thing. Um, pyramids, funnels, all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Exploratory conceptual is really like brainstorming sessions, whiteboard sessions. Mm. How do we come up with the funnel? How do we come up with the metaphor that's going to visually describe our idea? Um, that's really about facilitation skills. It really has very little to do with your ability to manipulate software or even draw, frankly. Mm. If you can scribble on a whiteboard, you can you can be good at that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in the bottom corner is the most complicated, sort of the most exciting, is the exploratory data-driven. And that's sort of your data science, your data analysis, your hypothesis uh, forming. You know, you've got a lot of data you want to see. Hey, maybe people buy more umbrellas on Tuesdays when it's cloudy, you know. <laughs> it sense, you know? Yeah. Um, and so every one of these quadrants is a, is a different uh, sort of skill set. You know, up in the top right where we have the sort of everyday data viz, Design skills are important. Some data manipulation is important. But when you go down underneath that to the exploratory data-driven, the sort of data wrangling is much more important than the design skills. In mm. fact, design skills can work against you there because you don't want things to be overly designed. You want to be moving fast, iterating, and so on and so forth. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think it's uh, before I read the book, I was like, isn't everything declarative? And I was like, oh, no. I mean, there is so much exploration that happens. And, you know, one of the first questions that came to my mind is, I wonder what kinds of different tools he's using. Is he using the same thing for everything? Or is there like a tool of choice for each type? Yeah, the, the, it is the number one question I get. No matter what. <laughs> yes. In fact, I end my presentations now just by saying, I know you're going to ask me about what tools I use. So I'll just answer <laughs> I wish the answer were simple and I could say I use X and Y, but it's mm -hmm. not that simple. So I'm going to give sort of a an abbreviated answer here, if that's okay. Sure, um, sure. So there's no one tool that does everything well, and all the tools do some things well. My last count, I typically use between 20 and 30 tools on a regular basis. There are hundreds, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And it depends on the, what I'm doing, whether it's exploratory or, or, um, or conceptual or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so having said that, there are a few tools that rise to the top for me. And by the way, the tools that sort of do more well require more training. So mm -hmm. if you want to learn Tableau, it's fantastic. It can do a lot yeah. of things well, but it's a much steeper learning curve. Sure. Right? So, um, and these are not, uh, I'm not endorsing any of these products. I'm just telling people what 
I tend to use. So I've been using a tool a lot called Plotly, P-L-O-T dot L-Y. Mm -hmm. And what I find is it's the best kind of everyday dump some data in, get some views out, get a chart that I can work with. And then I have a workflow and I've got it to where I want it, where I export it as an SVG and actually refine the design in Illustrator. Oh, interesting. Okay. That gives so, those like the journalistic, uh, beautiful yeah. views that you have. I see. You can get it pretty close in Plotly itself, but I have some certain styles I like to use. Sure. I've invested in making those styles. So um, sort of template it. Mm -hmm. um, so Plotly is one I use a lot. There's one called Exploratory I use a little bit. I use a little bit of Tableau. Um, but what I often do is I just Google, <laughs> you know, different tools that I want to play with and just see how they see how they work. I will say, and I always say that the most important tools, Google or a browser, <laughs> you know, so you can yeah. look at pictures of what other people are doing or find data viz websites where people talk about tools they use. A pen and paper or mm. colors and paper. I do a lot more on paper or virtual paper, I've started to use an iPad sketch, um, oh, okay. sketch quite a bit. It's called uh, an app called Sketches that uses the pencil that um, is really good. But you can get 90% of the way there just drawn. And, and I actually prefer that to trying to manipulate in a program. I like to get to my idea on paper or on virtual paper before I start messing around with software. I am totally with you on the sketching. I don't have a tablet, so I've tried to use online sketches with my mouse and I'm like, oh, damn it, I can't. And I'll just, I'll can't be like, fast. just look at what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah, can't go fast enough because, it, it, and I say this in the book too, the key to sketching is to be open and generative, to just go fast and be messy mm. and not worry about getting it right, just getting ideas out on the paper that you can look at and refine later. So my sketches are, you know, I could show you some sketches that would sort of, blow your mind and how messy and incomprehensible they are, but they yeah. got me to place. No, I mean, it's, it's so true. You cannot filter the brainstorming process that it's totally counterintuitive. But what I loved about your book is how many sketches were in there rather than these polished final products. And even the notations that you made as you were going through your thought process of, well, you know, here's our starting point, but I really wanted to know what it looks like if blah, blah, blah. But what if we change? And I was like, this is exactly how our brain works right. when we're in a state of inquisition. And I think that's one of the most beautiful arts to analysis that maybe we're skipping over when we're in a rush to just produce something that looks finished. And I yeah, and I think too the uh, the tools short circuit that process, right? Because they mm. make it what I call click and viz, where <laughs> click you get it, you click a button, you get a bar chart, right? Like right. it just short circuits that thinking process. But I can tell you, you know, that idea of just throwing ideas down on paper. What if we did this? What if we tried this? Yeah, is exactly how I do it, and it, you always end up with much better results uh, if you can just sort of take the time to do that. It's so true. Um, I remember when I was doing a, uh, I think, tech change data visualization course, and there was a Stephanie Evergreen had put out a challenge. I couldn't figure out how to do any of the things I wanted to do, but I knew what they, I wanted them to look like and drawing them and handing them off to someone a bit more skilled than I was actually allowed me to get to the goal. And that's something else that you actually talk about is leveraging the right resources for the heavy lifting of what you're trying to accomplish. So I think one thing that's happened in the industry and as information design becomes more and more important, which I argue it has, 
uh, is people are looking for unicorns, you know, who can, <laughs> who can sort of do some design, do some statistics and yeah. do the presentation on the subject matter as well. And I absolutely I have a whole presentation about this where I advocate for a team based approach sure. where it's really subject matter expert plus data person plus designer. And mm. they come at different times. And, you know, sometimes one person can handle two of them. Very few people can handle all three. Right. Um, and, and I keep a kitchen cabinet of people and we all should keep a kitchen cabinet of people <laughs> who I can turn to and say, help me design this. What am I doing wrong here? Or I can't, um, I can't really get this data sort of wrangled the way I want to, sure. you know, the, the super secret is I'm terrible with spreadsheets. I'm like, I can, I work them and, but I, it's really, I struggle with some of the advanced functionality of them. So I have friends who just help me, you know, um, but and it's getting easier, you know, as the more I do it. But um, but it's it's absolutely crucial that we think about this as sort of a team sport. I couldn't agree more. I I had the vision pop up of instead of looking for a Swiss Army knife, you're building, you're curating a tool belt, right? From a strengths perspective, it's so funny because on um, the storytelling with data podcast with Cole Newsbomber Naflik, she had Alberto Cairo, and I was like, oh, I, can't, I get to hear him. And he admitted that, you know, he actually is very simplistic with his visualizations. He doesn't program or code or do these very exotic visuals. And it occurred to me that people are looking for a Swiss army knife of someone who knows stats, someone who can communicate effectively with the stakeholder, someone who can program in R. And I think it's so true that finding, uh, curating a a dream team of these complementary skill sets is a great strategy. Yeah. And and I love Alberta's work. And I think increasingly the tools are getting so powerful that people are sort of over-engineering their visualizations too. So it's sort yeah. of, I'm, I'm similar to Alberta that way. I can do a little bit of programming with D3 and JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Not, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm not a professional <laughs> at all, uh, but I can do enough to be dangerous. And sometimes it really comes in handy. But I think what we've discovered in media especially is, you know, the desire for that is really, it has to be really valuable. We can't just make it whiz bang and animated and sort of interactive yes. because we want to. There has to be a really good reason to show change or to show dyna- dynamic information uh, in that way or to allow the user to manipulate it. Um, otherwise, people don't play with it and they're sort of put off by the yes. No, th- this makes absolute sense. So, you know, one of the things that uh, most common questions that I'm getting, and I'm sure you get, it's a hot topic, is how to choose the best chart for your data story. Um, you cite some of the decision tree diagrams that are out there. You have a similar one in your book. But what what stood out to me about your advice was how to use keywords during brainstorming to arrive at a choice. Yeah. Love to hear people, more. people love this when I do this in workshops. <laughs> They just love it because it's they don't realize what they're doing. So, you know, part of the the framework I lay out, which is talk, sketch, prototype, right? And mm-hmm. so you start by talking about what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Set yeah. your context. And it really helps to have a good friend and somebody who can take notes, or sometimes not a good friend, somebody who has no idea what you're working on, so they can ask with the really basic questions. Mm-hmm. So maybe you you're making assumptions you don't even know and they can stop you. Right. Um, but you start talking to them just about what you're trying to accomplish and inevitably after five, ten sometimes a little longer, but it's usually five or 10 minutes. I have at least a dozen words they said that either describe oh. what you should use or at least start to point in a direction, right? And so in the, in the book, I actually match up some of the words you might say to describe your data or what you're trying to accomplish 
to the types of chart you you use. And really, there's you know three or four different sort of categories. But if you look at distributions, right? Mm-hmm. Think of scatter plots. Right. Think of uh, curves. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, histograms, so on and so forth. There are certain words you'd be using as you talked about your data that would just say, "This is a distribution." Mm. You know, you know their, their performance was all over the place. <laughs> Inconsistent. Sometimes you say, you know, it was just it ranged from this to that. You mm. know, and you hear these words, and as you start to learn to capture them, right, it really right. helps to narrow down your choices. Because people suffer from one of two things: they either want to try every different type of chart, see which one they like the best, or right. they think looks the neatest. Right. <laughs> charts and line charts and pie charts and, and they never sort of get beyond it but there's some really basic ways to capture those words and match those words to intent now what's really wonderful every now and again somebody says a sentence that describes exactly what they want to show right <laughs> they'll say i just want to show a trend over three years where there was a gap in performance in the middle mm-hmm. yeah and when they say that i say well i can actually draw that right now <laughs> <laughs> Um, And so sometimes in this talking process, you actually end up describing precisely what it is you're going to show Mm. and your choice is made for you. It's really great. You know, I I think that's amazing. Things like, um, you know, I want to know how a group of these things changed over two points in time. And, you know, you can, oh, dot plot and start to learn about using things like that. Now, one of the complaints that I most often get is, but anything but bar charts. I'm so sick of bar charts. And I, I'm, I'm on the fence with this because I think the reason it's so ubiquitous is because it works and there's no learning curve. We're trained in how to understand it and it can be impactful. And things like a dot plot might have a bit of a learning curve for people. Yes. So what are your thoughts on uh, boredom, chart boredom? <laughs> yeah, I think they're actually, I would argue they're not bored with bar charts. They're bored with bad bar charts. Ah, okay. So, if you can make the bar chart effective at just saying one thing and one thing only really well, um, they're super effective. That's why they're still here. They're incredibly effective for certain things. Now, I tend to, um, I'm a big fan of dot plots as a way to um, overcome some of the limitations of bar, plot, bar charts in some cases, not in all cases. Clustered, right? Especially. Yeah. Yeah. Clusters. And when you're looking at, when you want to compare the values, between the bars, if you end up with 17 bars and you're trying to compare value three <laughs> right. and value 16, you got to kind of scan your eyes across and then mm-hmm. estimate distance between them. It's harder than it is with a with a uh, dot plot. Right. Um, so they have their place, but I, I think bar charts get abused because they're the number one tool people think of, and you end up with, you know, a bar chart with four categories and four bars per category. So you have these clusters of four bars across. Four categories, you get these right. 16 different color bars. <laughs> a lot of times people put the values that are related to the bar atop each bar, you know? So you've got yes. 3.62, 3.23, 3.11, right. you know, all the way across. Um, and then they label them up and they keep all the grid lines. So it's it's this is where, I, you know, I always talk about context is important. I don't mean to say design is not important at all. Mm-hmm. I just think people stress about design too much. But there are some basic design principles that I put in the book that are not, you know, this is not advanced design stuff that right. if you just follow those, um, it'll clean up a lot of the stuff that makes people sort of sick of bar charts and pie charts and so on and so forth. I, I totally hear you. 
if I really have to think back, when I really started getting these things right, including the context and the message, I can't remember anyone complaining that it was a bar chart that I used to present my message, <laughs> if I think about it. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's so true. You can use a beautiful dot plot. And if the message and the context and the execution aren't great, you yes. can strike out as well. That's right. And I do like to say to people, you know, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to learn design or, you know, I'll never get to the point where my charts look like yours. And I don't think that's true, number one. But one thing I always tell them is if you work on the context part, the beautiful thing is a lot of the de de design decisions are made by setting your context, right? Mm. So here's a simple example. You spit out a bar chart from Excel and it's got 16 bars, four clusters of four, you know, so mm -hmm. you have bars stuck together, four bars stuck together. Right. And you got the four colors, so you got all this color. Now, if you sit about and think about your context and you say, well, does each year need its own color? Right. Is that important for me to get my idea across? And if the answer is no, then you've just made a design decision by setting your context, right? So mm. now I can say, okay, let's just make them all the same color. Let's override what Excel told me to do or Excel just did. Um, and what you find is as you set your context better and you get the idea that you want to convey across using some of these design principles, the design sort of takes care of itself. It's pretty magic. It's really great. I'm so glad you brought this up because it actually skips down to an area I wanted to talk about. I didn't want to focus a lot on the basic design stuff, but color for me is the thing that I, I do want to focus on for our listeners. So I pulled out a quote and I use this quote a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I love how you phrase this. So you say, think of color in a chart as a fraction that you need to reduce. Find the lowest common denominator that still preserves the distinctions you need to convey your idea. <laughs> this is the best way I found of phrasing it. I was actually pretty chuffed with that one. Once I thought of it, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. So I, <laughs> I don't know how I did. But <laughs> so please uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, it's the number one uh, sin. I, I, I try not to use that word. It's the number one mistake people make is they think I've got seven marks, I need seven colors. Mm -hmm. And in general, we need a lot fewer colors than we think. Right. Um, and so I always tell people to, there are two main things is to group things as much as you can. Mm -hmm. right? Do you really, if there's three variables, if you're dealing with seven offices and you really want to focus on two of them, do the other five really need their own color or can they just right. all be the same color? Right. Because basically there's five variables, but it's really one variable. It's the other ones. Right. So always look for ways to group these together and that's reducing the fraction. And then always think about gray as your friend. Right. Yeah. There is information you want people to go to first. You want their eyes to actually move there first. And there's information you need there to compare it to, but you don't want their eyes to go there first. And that information that is sort of pro provides the context in a different way than we were talking about before, but provides the context within the chart should and can be gray. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very powerful tool once people start to learn how to use gray. I 100% agree. And the line I like to think about it, because I, I try to help my students separate relaying objective observations mm -hmm. to create trust and credibility, and yeah. then using color as a storytelling tool to overlay a more subjective message 
for for persuasion, right? Yes, right. So yes. that's actually what I wanted to talk about next. This was a really standout part of the book for me. Well, they all stood out, but this one, <laughs> I love this one. Uh, it was about ethics, data viz ethics and persuasion versus manipulation. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite quotes from the book is saying, before you're going to present something to someone, ask yourself, would I feel duped if someone else presented me with a chart like this and use that as a moral compass for how yeah. you're going to render the chart ultimately? So tell us more ways about how we either intentionally or unintentionally manipulate our message and how we can avoid it. Yeah, sure. And uh, I, I want to sort of preface this by saying it's almost always unintentional. There are, <laughs> yes, they tend to become well known, but there are cases where people are intentionally very, very bad with charts. Right, we don't like them; they're very bad. I just finished. I did a, a presentation at South by Southwest this year called "Facts, Truth, and Data Viz" about this very um, this very topic, and we talked about some of the very bad actors, but we also talked about the unintentional. Mm. And I always start talking about persuasion by telling people, and some people don't like this, especially data scientists hate this. But I say every chart is a manipulation. Yeah. Every chart is some combination of decisions, conscious and subconscious, about what to show, what not to show, and how to show it. Right. Mm. Um, and there's no getting around it. There's no objective chart, and that's okay. That's a you know that's that's not a problem. We often need to persuade people with our charts. We're trying to separate them from their money or get a promotion <laughs> or do right. something. Right. And so we, we really need to be persuasive. We have to be responsible with it. And I think as the more I thought about it, because it's getting easier and easier to create data viz, um, we need as much data viz literacy from the consumers as we do honesty from the producers. Mm, I think interesting. We, as you know, we, we're pretty good at reading the news and thinking that doesn't sound real or that does sound real. We're not as good with visuals that way. We see a chart. We want to believe it. Charts yes. have researchers call it high facticity. They have a very um, a, a sense of being true to us, just sort of innately in our minds, just by seeing it. Um, and so we have to overcome that by saying, well, how could they have manipulated this, right? right? And so some of the ways that happens, either intentionally or not, the most common that people talk about is the truncated y-axis, right? right? Yeah. The very famous truncated y-axis. So if you don't start your y-axis at zero, the principle is the fewer values on your y-axis, the more distance between change, right? Right. So curves become steeper, um, change becomes more dramatic. Right. And uh, and we have to think about that, right? Because ultimately, people don't read charts thinking about statistics. They don't look at the statistics in the chart. They see a story. Right. And so they see a, a curve that goes way up and way down, and they think that's volatile, or that's a big up and a big down. Right. Literally, this is how our brains process this. They process these more as narratives than they do. We don't look mm. at it. As, it started at 0 0.7. It went up to 1.3, and then it went down to... We, that's just not how our brains think of it, right? We think big change, or we think no change, or we think flat, or we think um, you know up and down, you know, all, all kinds of sort of more narrative ways. So we have to understand how people are going to perceive it in order to do it responsibly. I'm not somebody who says never truncate your axis. There are reasons to do it, and it ties sure. you to get but you have to know when you're doing it, what the effect is, and you better be able to defend your information and your point of view when somebody calls you out on it. And I've seen that before where somebody says, well, that looks impressive, but what if we just started at zero? It won't look so impressive. And you have to be able to say, well, it still is a significant change from one to two, even though it doesn't look like as much if we don't truncate the axis. So I think right. there's a lot there, obviously, but 
Um, I put as much on it of it on the consumers learning how to you know think about these mm. things as I do on the producers. I think that's an excellent point. You know, we as consumers, we naturally have a cognitive bias, right? That's what you're referencing when you're talking about when we observe something, it goes right through a very unique set of lenses that are completely unique to our own experiences, our wants, desires, fears. And we're overlaying our own emotions on that, which is why I think that news outlets are so successful at that sort of thing. And that is exactly how I pictured it, telling people like, make sure you can defend this in a court of law (laughs) and and that you can sleep at night. You know, if you can sleep at night, um, then you're on the right track. And um, I I, the example, because I'm still trying to wrap my head around the difference between bars and the difference in the slopes in lines and things. But I guess the best way for me is I think of a a body temperature. You know, you're going to look at a body temperature over time and it'll look flat line if you keep it at zero. But if you zoom in on that specific range, you're going to see changes that actually mean a lot in the context of the data. A, right. a tiny change in temperature means a lot to a person who might be, have been sick that day. So, That's right. I, hey, did you see my blog post about that? Because that's something I actually wrote about. Oh, really? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote about uh, the, the sort of illusion of flat lines. Okay. And, uh, because there was a famous chart that was tweeted out um, and again, I don't care about people's politics, but it said the only climate change chart you need to see, and it was a flat line that went from, you know, it was the world temperature, the average world global temperature temperature over 100 years. And it was a flat line because mm, they right. started the axis at zero and went to uh, 150 degrees. Mm-hmm. Really only changes a degree and a half, but that's a really significant degree and a half. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so uh, that's where I talk about this sort of gestalt principle of prognance, which is we look at a flat line. We don't look at the statistics and we say, Flat means safe. Flat means okay. Flat means mm. it's changing. But in right. fact, something's changing. And to prove that point, I did a body temperature line exactly like that and labeled it with normal body, body temperature on one end and on the other end sort of approaching death. Even though- <laughs> yes. Um, so very, you're right on with that assessment is that we had, and this is you becoming a good consumer of charts and understanding sometimes flat lines mean something, you know. I am a good consumer of charts, Daniel. (laughs) And everyone listening will be now too. So I actually, I want to get to another part of the book that really stood out to me in sort of the ocean of data viz books that are out there. This made it unique. It was on really what telling a story with the data means. I've never seen so many clear, detailed approaches to this. So my favorite tool that you mentioned is creating tension you know, and giving a more cinematic experience to the people because, my God, we get them in a room, we should entertain them a little bit. But can you talk about the benefit in creating tension and, and how they can go about doing that? Absolutely. You know, storytelling with data business is a big topic and the tension and some of the other techniques I talk about are really about presenting stories. Um, so I'll talk to it in that context. But um, it's such a, a good way to keep people's brains engaged because that we are fighting when we're presenting data we are fighting everybody's impulse to look at it to read it to, to stop listening to us and to try to figure it out themselves or to look at their phones because they're bored or if they look up and they see a mess of a chart they're just going to give up after about 400 milliseconds or so you know mm-hmm. you don't have time uh, but when you use this idea of creating tension and the way i sort of describe it in, in the book and when i do presentations is if you walked into a room, 
I can't sing, but I'm gonna. So <laughs> into a, a room with all your colleagues and you stood at the front and you said, Twinkle, twinkle, little <laughs> What? Star, right? <laughs> yeah. So what's going on there is your brain seeks resolution, right? Your brain mm -hmm. needs to resolve that melody. And so when you create tension in a chart where you say, here's some information that I've made it easy for you to understand, but something's about to happen to that information and you withhold it, mm. you force them to become engaged because their brains want to know what happens. They start guessing. Sometimes they start guessing out loud. It's really interesting. They say, I bet it went down. I bet, uh, right. I bet. I bet we beat expectations. And you can really use that to keep an audience engaged. Um, but to do that, you have to understand where and when to break down a chart, where and when to sort of break the story up, mm -hmm. where's the setup, where's the conflict, and where's the resolution. And that's sort of when I talk about storytelling with data, that's all I focus on. I think the whole storytelling with data world has gotten so overwrought with story points and how to... <laughs> yes. It's really just following story format, which is as old as time, which is there's a setup, some reality, mm -hmm. there's conflict, a change to that reality, which, by the way, can be positive. A promotion is a conflict. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. there's resolution, a new reality, right? And if you can stick to those three things, you can do wonderful things with your charts. Because right. once you start thinking that way, you look at charts, you can actually oftentimes see the setup, the conflict, the resolution in the chart itself. And then it becomes three charts or it becomes five. <laughs> Right. And I think these builds are so crucial when we present in terms of teasing out that information bit by bit. You know, I love I'm a big movie buff and I love looking at movies and TVs for those kinds of techniques that they use to keep us hooked. And think of every TV episode of a, a drama. Does it ever really wrap uh, into a nice bow at the end of each show? No, of course not. It's a cliffhanger and it leaves you coming back for more. The one I, when I do when I do talks, I always say this is why HGTV is so successful. Right? <laughs> like you, you watch a show, they're they're redoing the house, right? And they show you little bits, but they never. And you need the reveal. Your yes. your brain, your Move body, bus. The, narrative, <laughs> the narrative part of you, and and it's just a human thing craves narrative. Yes, needs that resolution, and they keep teasing it. We're going to show you the reveal. We're going to show you the reveal, and that's you can do the same thing with charts. You know, you could all be Chip and Joanna Gaines. Absolutely. And I love those three steps. And what I'd love to overlay on that in addition in a storytelling capacity is really interesting characters, right, that make a great story. And for me, I like to think of the characters as the audience is the hero. You're going in there to help them, to guide them through a story. Um, the challenges, the conflict is in a way like the villain and yep. you are their guide. You are like Yoda <laughs> to their yes. Luke. Right. And um, that is a winning combination for sure. Yeah. And, and if you think of your job is to take them along the journey, you're going to create good stories. And it's going to be fun too. Yeah, you have the information they need. And if you can control the flow of that information, mm. stop at the right times, go at the right times, keep them guessing, keep them asking questions. Um, all of those techniques, the pausing works really well. I like to use bait, bait and switch a little bit. They call it the lure procedure. Okay. You say something like, a classic example I use in the book is, you know, you show them a chart that's empty and say, this shows how many jobs were lost when uh, robots were deployed in manufacturing. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you expect to see, right? And everybody will say, I expect to see more job losses with more robots. Mm -hmm. And you show them that. 
And you say, but this is reality. And then you flip to reality, which is not that at all, it turns out. Classes <laughs> do not correlate to robot deployments. And it, it creates this moment of dissonance in the audience where they have to say, I thought it was going to be this other thing. Why is it not? And now suddenly we're talking about the ideas because mm. we have to resolve this. We have to resolve this cognitive dissonance that right. this is not the reality I expected. And you only get there because you showed them what they wanted to see, what they thought they'd see, and then showed them reality and they have to resolve that. And that's a case of you, you know, like you were saying, you're their Yoda, you carrying them along that journey and telling that story in such a way that they are forced to think about why isn't reality the way I thought it would be? It's really yes. I can see that. And I love the idea of letting them get a little comfortable and then ripping the rug out because yeah. the second people I think get comfortable in meetings is when they start to tune out and think of other things. So, and I would just add, if I could just add, yeah. that, um, you know, at the beginning of the book, chapter two is about visual perception theory and things. Um, and some people thought I was just doing that to show that I was serious and I did all my research. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a really important chapter for people to understand how people see charts and things. Because those things that if you understand how people are looking at them, you can control the narrative in, in that situation. You understand what happens when you show them this color or that. Or if you show them something very busy or show them something very plain and simple. Um, to understand how people are taking this in is really the first step in understanding how to craft the narratives that are going to, like you said, rip the rug out keep them engaged, keep them coming back, keep them guessing, so on and so forth. Right. Oh, love it. So this is probably, again, they're all my favorite section, honestly, but one of my favorite messages that really came through was sort of an awakening that I've had as someone responsible for teaching others in this space. You have a lot to say on how we critique the work of others, and there's a lot of dogma in this field about, like you said, what's right and what's wrong, and this sucks. And I, I, I liked your article on how negative feedback is rarely productive, and there are sites like WTF Viz, and they almost offer up people who worked on something, they produce something, and then it, it serves them up for like a public lynching. So I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, um, I, I'm very put off by a lot of what goes on, and especially on Twitter, too, you know, where yeah. there's just public shame of charts, everybody's trying. Nobody's brought up to learn how to do good data. data. <laughs> information, <Amen>. design <laughs> information design is very new. And they're using the tools they've been given, which are not particularly good often, right? right. Um, some of the spreadsheet programs and other things, just they're not built to do this well, right? Yeah. So I think some of that is is really frustrating to me because of two things. One is, it's just not nice, <laughs> right? And we should be nice people. <laughs> um, but two is there's no such thing as the right chart, right? right? There's like, I could show, you could show me the chart and say, this one's much better than this. And I'd say, okay, in a situation, I can see that. But there's a lot of situations where that's a terrible chart. And yeah. um, it's all about context, right? And so I think this sort of public kind of criticism just isn't valuable. So I do my best. I can't say I'm 100% to number one, not ever publicly just say this is terrible. Yeah. You know, this is bad. Um, I say what I find challenging about it. I say what I think I would change if I were to do it, or I say this part didn't make much sense to me as sort of a classic design crit, which is about making the product better, not making the person who made it feel bad. Right. Um, and in the book, I took great pains in the upcoming book. I take great pains, um, to never, well, not never. I really try to resist, <laughs> do and don't. 
I, okay. I try not to say do this and don't do that, mm-hmm. especially don't. What I say is try this or this may be a better approach or mm-hmm. I've found that this works because right. that's where a lot of this comes from is that people are brought up to say you never use pachos. It's just, right. it's just you know, I had a, a friend of mine who truncated an axis and somebody tweeted him and said, your truncated y-axis is a thought crime. And I thought, wow. <laughs> Well yeah. then, <laughs> so it's just it's yeah. silly. So I think this is a really important subject as visual communication becomes more and more common, as the internet becomes more and more vile in some places. Yeah, yes, sort of reasonable discourse really has to be, um, has to be, it has to be. Anybody who's participating in this world should really be thinking about how their insults come across and how their critiques come across. And, just because you can make a better one doesn't mean the person didn't try. And uh, and maybe yours isn't always the better one. So. Absolutely. I think your viewpoint on this is so important um, and some, albeit a bit rare, in terms of creating a community, a global community of collaborative visualizers and teachers that want to help each other level up our games because we're all going to benefit from that. And I loved a framework that you had in the book about instead of saying, well, this sucks because of X, Y, Z, but making it more internal and subjective and listing out, okay, what do I like? What Mm -hmm. do I dislike? And what would I change about these things? And that's classic design crit. Mm -hmm. And the key for me to doing that, and I do that all the time. And once you start doing it, it's, I'm a bit of a nerd about it. But <laughs> too, you know, we like nerds some, here. Sometimes you realize I don't have a better answer than what they have. You know, yeah. like I like this, but I don't know how I do it. You know, um, but the key for that that process to me uh, is to react, to not think too much. You know, you look at it and think, okay, what do I like about it? And as you do that, and and you just sort of react to it. You find yourself, and and I always say, list good things and bad things. Never just say, this is terrible, period. You know, there's always something redeemable. There's always something retrievable. Um, But to react instead of thinking it through. Because when you start thinking it through, you start thinking academically. And that's not, we don't, like I said, we don't read statistics. We don't read charts academically. We we respond to a picture. And uh, we try to form a narrative out of it. So um, I think that's very effective. Uh, You know, there's other sort of techniques like that. Um, but it, the key for me is the forum you're doing it in, you know, small groups, not on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, and to, to be humble about it, to realize that, you know, you don't have all the answers and you may not, you may, like I said, oftentimes I say, I just, I wouldn't do it that way, but I can't think of a better way to do it, you know? So yeah. be humble about it and just realize we're all, we're all trying and sometimes we do well and sometimes we don't do, don't do well. And I've, you know, I've made my fair share of really, really terrible charts. So no, I don't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I think there's some classic communication skills in here as well. Taking a pause before reacting is just a tool for life that I'm far from mastering myself, but I'm getting there. But I think taking a pause to reflect and also staying curious, this is a big growth area for me as well. It's like, before I assume I know why someone did what they did, how can I stay curious and say, what made you go about it that way? Tell me more about that. And I think wars will end when we do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I... um, I want to ask you, you know, you on the forefront of seeing what's happening in the world of data viz, what gets you most excited about the future of information sharing? 
it's not, it, a lot of people think it's going to be like holograms or VR or something like that. <laughs> it's not that at all. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about a few things. One is that it's becoming, um, it's sort of overcoming its democratizing moment where it just became exploded and became popular. Mm-hmm. And now it's becoming sort of part of how we communicate. So it's sort of exciting to see it embedded into everyday life. Um, it's, it's in TV plots. It's like, you know, you see it in TV plots, you see it in the news being done much better than it used to. Um, I just think you you look at a situation like the boys in Thailand, um, in the amount of good data viz that was produced to help us understand that situation, Mm -hmm. just incredible. And it's really heartening. Um, I think that's really interesting. I think about worry about, you know, um, talk a lot about, this idea of data manipulation as a propaganda tool. I think we have to be on the guard for that. Yes. Um, and we have to sort of improve everybody's data viz literacy. Um, and I think the tools are slowly, surely getting to a place where what I call, you know, default output is a lot better than it used to be. Because if you true. can get default output to a place where it's not feeling almost random, <laughs> uh, <it laughs> yes. starts from a good place. It, it makes it much easier to get to that next step, you know? So I think, uh, I think that's interesting. And then finally, I would just say, I have a particular interest in some of what's going on in terms of data science and visualization in industries, uh, in general, like how the sports industry is revolutionizing. Yeah. Oh, when you get a fervor about uh, something like that, you're going to get the best minds creating. <laughs> so there's some great stuff going on in data and like basketball yeah. and other sports. And then in like agriculture, data is making a huge difference uh, in how we're mapping uh, farmland and how we fertilize that farmland and things like that. Uh, data is in engineering. Mm. The example I use in my presentation a lot is Tesla is using data visualization to sort of re-engineer cars based on how we drive them, not how they're supposed to be driven, right? So they can see how hard we press the brakes and how hard we hit the gas. And it may not be the way the car is engineered to take that kind of stress. And so they're using data viz to sort of discover behavior, which I think is just really interesting. So that that sort of excites me as well. But, you know, I also just love a good bar chart now. It's like homemade apple pie, but not a pie chart. (laughs) I I love those things too, especially around creating greater data literacy. I'm really trying to inspire both sides of the coin of saying it's not really just the responsibility of the presenters and visualizers. Our audiences could show up by empowering themselves and becoming more literate as well. And for the visualizers to really take more responsibility for the ethics behind what it is they're doing. So those are great. And you actually inspired a one last question. Yeah, sure. <laughs> is there some sort of resource that you could recommend where people can break out of their bar charts and see some of the visualizations that you're talking about that are really making a splash? And First this. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> there um, is some amazing so, stuff in there, yeah. So, um, yeah, so... The first thing I would suggest people do, and I know Twitter's nuts, but if you subscribe to just uh, the hashtag DataViz, yeah. mm-hmm. you can subscribe to DataViz, data visualization, sort of all the derivatives of it. Um, you'll see a lot of stuff fly by, a lot of good stuff, yeah. a lot of bad stuff, a lot of interesting stuff. Um, yeah. Some of it is on the very high end of the sort of computer visualization world, which is sort of 3D modeling and all of that interesting to me. I'm not sort of, I wouldn't say I'm the best person for that, but mm-hmm. uh, 
but you will just be inspired by what you see um, there for sure. Um, the upshot on the New York Times is really great. Okay. <laughs> they do awesome. a really good job with their visualization efforts and for the most part. Um, I don't think, you know, anybody's perfect. So I use it a lot to mine too, of saying, how would I have done this different, that kind of thing. Um, in general, the media, the large media organizations, the Times, The Economist, mm -hmm. The Washington Post sure. Washington. are starting to get good at integrating data viz into their storytelling online. Um, the, the Times just the other day, if anybody's interested, did a very brief visual explainer on the trade war. Wow. Probably... 250, 300 words total, but it was one of those scroll trigger things where you just scroll, it gives you a caption and the picture changes. Yeah. A beautiful, I think it's one of nearly perfect execution on data visualization as an explainer. Um, so 538, Vox, all those guys, mm -hmm. uh, all the, the sort of big media outlets uh, are doing it uh, very well. I happen to be a huge fan of historical visualization as well. Mm -hmm. And I can't recommend enough a book from about 1912 called Graphic Methods for Presenting Facts by a man named Willard Brinton. And what you find when you look at this is that a lot of things you think are new visualization sort of approaches are not new. <laughs> they were doing incredible stuff, to, the railroad uh, companies especially, but a lot of the large industrials who had the resources to do it were doing incredible visualization around the turn of the last century. Um, so I like going backwards to get inspiration sometimes, too. I think that's sort of an interesting way to look at how people used to handle um, situations. I just My wife was just in Washington, D.C. and got me a gift. Can I show it to you? Yes, please do. Um, it's on my wall, so we're going to walk over here. <laughs> uh, some guy in the government a long time ago made a visualization of cocktail recipes. Wow. Um, it's old, but the cross-hatching and the sort of approach is just incredible and there's like a key down here of what the different mixes mean and whatever and so i take a lot of inspiration from things like that um i think it's really really cool to see how people used to solve problems before they had computers to do it right um, messing everything up <laughs> those are just some of them but then i also look at industrial design i look at presentations that people give anything that i think can inspire me in terms of how do people set context in other situations? You know, yes. how do you, when you design a room, how do you set the context for like which furniture pieces I put together, that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. um, I just, I, I like the design thinking approach, which is all about understanding the needs, understanding the context, and then delivering something that helps achieve that. Uh, that's beautifully said. And I too have caught some amazing New York Times visuals, especially the interactive ones are particularly fascinating. And you also brought up something interesting around the scrolling aspect. So, you know, we're becoming a scrolling generation that's becoming the new storytelling paradigm for the web. And yet, you know, we're still confined to one single view and dashboards and things. And I think it's going to be really interesting how we see scrolling become a tool in our storytelling capabilities. I agree. I think uh, it's it, when it's done well, it's it's seamless and it, it makes sense. It feels right. And I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. And this New York Times piece I talked about, it just feels right. It's giving you, but what, one of the reasons I, I have to think about, why is that? I think one of the reasons is it gives you the information you need at the moment you need it. So right. 
when you think it's static, it's just sort of placed kind of close to where it goes. And maybe somebody looks at it before they show it or after, but this is sort of putting it in the perfect context. I'm going to trigger the view you need to see as you're reading the words that refer to that. Right. Meaning. Exactly. That's, uh, that's really powerful. Awesome. Oh, Scott, unfortunately, our time has run out. I could, <laughs> we could go all day, but uh, what's your next big thing coming up? Yeah. So uh, this is pretty exciting. I think you'll be excited. Um, <laughs> coming January, uh, good charts workbook. Yay. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, we're very excited. Um, so here's the idea behind it. You've, you've do crosswords maybe? Um, with with my son. <laughs> <laughs> so you get a crossword book. You can do the crosswords. The answers are in the back. Uh, we've done something similar here with, with charts. I, I wouldn't say the answers are in the back. I say the discussion is in the back. Mm -hmm. So what we'll do is we'll provide you with challenges where we provide a chart or a part of a chart, and we ask you to go ahead and solve the challenge we give you. You know, How would you make this clear? Oh. How would you reduce the color in this chart to make it still work but have fewer colors? Um, and we give you some sketch space in there that we sort of recommend you have paper handy too. Um, and then in the back is my discussion of how I attack the challenge. And I often in that discussion say, this is not the only way. This is yes. just how I did it. I'd love to hear how you did it. And in a couple of the cases, I think my discussion arrives at a very kind of unsatisfactory place where I say, I don't think I solved this very well. <laughs> Look forward to your solutions um, uh, to these challenges. And, and the book is sort of um, divided up by challenge types. So there's a chapter on color. There's a chapter on clarity. There's a chapter mm. on chart types. There's a chapter on persuasion and there's a chapter on conceptual diagrams. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end, we give you two big challenges where you put all of those skills together. I compare it to learning the guitar. I've been trying to learn the guitar. <laughs> um, you know, first you got to do chords and notes yes. and all of that stuff. And then you can kind of start to do songs. So there's a couple of songs in the back for lack of a better term where we put all these skills together in one big challenge. Well, it sounds like this workbook's going to be a crucial tool, and I will make sure everybody that I know knows okay. about it. <laughs> I, think, I think it's going to be a lot of fun for people because, you know, people like to sort of figure out, see if I can figure this out on my own and then have the answers in the back. I know when I do crosswords, it's nice to have the answers in the back. So. No, it, well, it's gratification, but I think the beauty of what, you, what you're creating there is like we talked about before, you're not creating a situation where a person's going to take a stab at it and be like, oh God, am I wrong? Am I wrong? And then you say, hey, this is how I went about it. What do yeah. you think? Right. And they don't have this, have this crushing sense of rejection if they got sure. it wrong. So right. to speak. Yes. So, no, they will not. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Just, which is great. I would love that. <laughs> yeah. So how can people keep up with you if they want to reach out? So Twitter, I'm at Scott Baronado, just my name all run together. Um, I occasionally, I haven't been very active lately just because I've been busy but with the book, but I've occasionally just post charts and interesting things that, you know, I like that I see out in the wild. So I'm part of that data viz sort of community out there. Mm -hmm. Um, Google my name if you want. Uh, go to hbr.org. HBR, I do a lot for the print magazine and for the website. Um, the book, obviously, is on Amazon and all of those good mm -hmm. places. Um, and I do I do a lot of speaking sort of all around the country. It's usually updated on Twitter. So if you are into charts and I happen to be in San Francisco and you're in San Francisco, just tweet at me. Awesome. And all of the links that we've mentioned and all the ways to get in touch with Scott, including the book, will be on the show notes page for this episode. So Scott, what a thrill to have you on today. 
So glad it finally happened. You know, it's rare when someone's work, I think, has such a profound effect or can and so perfectly answers the burning questions that you you come up as you go deeper into these areas. So I know that my listeners will be so leveled up after they dive into your stuff. Um, so thank you so much again for the time. Really an honor. I had so much fun and, and it's really heartening. I, I, it's, I know it's a cliche, but authors always say it's not about how many books I sell. It's about, you know, if I move somebody. And so to hear you uh, respond so positively really makes me feel good. It's going to make my weekend. So. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> it's well-deserved. Thanks. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Oh, getting to meet true thought leaders like Scott is always the most rewarding element of doing this show and bringing their infinite wisdom to you listeners. You know, he's not where he is just by casting a sort of fire and brimstone approach to the right and wrong way of doing things in data visualization. He's just someone who is driven by the pursuit of service and balance, which speaks right to my heart. And I hope you enjoyed meeting him as well. So to catch all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 035. I would love if you could leave me a comment or a question for Scott, because I want to hear about the challenges you face when presenting information. Remember to scroll to the bottom to sign up for a copy of the Pika Protocol prescription. You're going to love it. Or you can tweet me a question for the show by including my Twitter handle, which is at Leapika, including the hashtag PBM. And I was tempted to leave you a quote from his book, but something he actually said to me before we recorded this interview was so much more inspiring to me. And it has to do with our role as teachers and guides to you in this challenging line of work. And what he said was, we are not here to lecture you. We are just here to armor you with tools and you're going to be okay. <laughs> Man, he is good. It's so true, the greatest teachers truly are the ones who detach from the idea that what we know is better or worse than what anyone else knows. It's all about empowering you with tools to build your own experiences and empires of success. So that's it for today. Till next time. Namaste. And that's a wrap. All right. Thank you. I hope so. Great stuff here. My cat agrees, who's <laughs> my audio, audio bombing my show now. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not you, it's me. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> <laughs>